0: chicken soup for the unsinkable soul welcome to today's reading we have here on page 10 optimism is a cheerful frame of mind that enables a tea kettle to sing though it's in hot water up to his nose my mother's greatest gift I was 10 years old when my mother was left paralyzed by a spinal tumor. Prior to that, she had been a vital, vibrant woman, active to an extent most people found astonishing. Even as a small child, I was awed by her accomplishments and beauty. But at 31, her life changed, and so did mine. Overnight, it seemed she was flat on her back, confined to a hospital bed. A benign, benign tumor had incapacitated her, but I was too young to comprehend the irony of the word benign, for she was never to be the same. I still have vivid images of her before the paralysis. She had always been gr- gracious and entertaining frequently. She often spent hours preparing hors to divorce and filling the house with flowers, which she picked fresh from the garden that she kept in the side yard. She would get out of the popular music of that era and rearrange the furniture to make room for friends to abandon themselves to dance. In fact, it was mother who loved to dance most of all. Mesmerized, I watch her dress for the evening festives. Even today, I remember our favorite dress with his black skirt and midnight lace, the perfect foil for her blonde hair. I was as thrilled as she the day she brought home black lace high heel pumps and that night my mother surely was the most beautiful woman in the world. She could do anything I believe whether it was play tennis she won tournaments in college or sew she made all our clothes or take photographs she won a national contest or write she was a newspaper columnist or cook especially Spanish dishes for my father. Now, although she could do none of these things, she faced her illness with the same enthusiasm she had brought to everything else. Words like handicap and physical therapy became part of a strange new world we entered together. As the child's rubber balls she strove to squeeze assumed a mystique that they had never before possessed. Gradually, I began to help take care of the mother who had always taken care of me. I learned to care for my own hair and hers. Eventually, it became routine to wheel her into the kitchen where she instructed me in the art of peeling carrots and potatoes and how to rub down a good beef roast with fresh garlic and salt and chunks of butter. When for the first time I heard talk of a cane, I objected. I don't want my pretty mother to use a cane, but all she said was, Wouldn't you rather have me walk with a cane than not walk at all? Every accomplishment was a milestone for us both. The electric typewriter, the car with power steering and brakes, her return to college where she earned a master's degree in special education. She learned everything she could about the disabled and eventually found an activist support group called the Handicappers. One day, without saying much beforehand, she took me and my brothers to a handicappers meeting. I had never seen so many people with so many disabilities. I returned home silently introspective, thinking how fortunate we really were. She took us many other times after that, and eventually, the sight of a man or a woman without legs or arms no longer shocked us. My mother also introduced us to victims of cerebral palsy, stressing that most of them were as bright as we were, maybe brighter, and she taught us to communicate with the mentally retarded, pointing out how much more affectionate they often were compared to normal people. Throughout all of this, my father remained loving and supportive. When I was 11, mother told me she and daddy were going to have a baby. Much later, I learned that her doctor had urged her to have a a therapeutic abortion, an option she vehemently resisted. Soon, we were mothers together. As I became a surrogate mom to my sister, Mary Therese, in no time at all, I learned to change diapers, bathe, and feed her. Though mother maintained maternal discipline, for me, it was a giant step beyond playing with dolls. One moment stands out even today the time mary therese then too, fell and skinned her knee burst into tears and ran past my mother's outstretched arm into mine too late i glimpsed the flicker of hurt on mother's face but all she said was it's natural that she would run to you because you take good such good care of her because my mother accepted her condition with such optimism i rarely felt sad or resentful about it but I will never forget the day my complacency was shattered. Long after the image of my mother in stiletto heels and receded from my consciousness, there was a party at our house. I was a teenager by then. And I saw my smiling mother sitting on the sidelines, watching her friends dance. I was struck by the cruel irony of her physical limitations. Suddenly, I was transported back to the days of my early childhood and the vision of my radiant dancing mother was born before me again. I wonder whether mother remembered too. Spontaneously, I moved toward her, and then I saw that though she was smiling, her eyes were brimming with tears. I rushed out of the room and into my bedroom, buried my face in my pillow and wept copious tears. All the tears she never shed. For the first time, I raged against God and at life and its injustices for mother. The memory of my mother's glistening smile stayed with me. From that moment, I view her ability to overcome the loss of so many former pursuits and her drive to look forward, things I had taken for granted as a great mystery and a powerful inspiration. When I was grown and entered the field of corrections, mother became interested in working with prisoners. She called the penitentiary and asked to teach creative writing to inmates. I recall how they crowded around her whenever she arrived and seemed to cling to every word as I had as a child. Even when she no longer could go out to the prison, she she corresponded frequently with several inmates. One day she asked me to mail a letter to one prisoner, Wayman. I asked if I could read it first, and she agreed. Little realizing, I think what a revelation it would be to me. It read, Dear Wyman, I want you to know that I have been thinking about you often since receiving your letter. You mentioned how difficult it is to be locked behind bars, and my heart goes out to you. But when you said that I couldn't imagine what it was like to be in prison, I felt impelled to tell you that you are mistaken. There are different kinds of freedom, Wayman. different kinds of prisons. Sometimes our prisons are self-imposed. When at the age of 31, I awoke one day to find that I was completely paralyzed. I felt trapped, overwhelmed by a sense of being imprisoned in a body that would no longer allow me to run through a meadow of dan- or dance or carry my child in my arms. For a long time, I lay there struggling to come to terms with my infirmity, trying not so- to succumb to self-pity. I asked myself whether, in fact, life was worth living under such conditions, whether it might not be better to die. I thought about this concept of imprisonment because it seemed to me that I had lost everything in life that mattered. I was near despair. But then, one day it occurred to me that, in fact, there were still some options open to me and that I had the freedom to choose among them. Would I smile when I saw my children again, or would I weep? Would I rail against God, or would ask him to strengthen my faith? In other words, what would I do with the free will he had given me, and which was still mine? I made a decision to strive. As long as I was alive, to, to live as fully as I could, to seek to turn my seemingly negative experiences into positive experiences, to look for ways to transcend my physical limitations by expanding my mental and spiritual boundaries. I could choose to be a positive role model for my children, or I could wither and die emotionally as well as physically. There are many kinds of freedoms, Wayman. When we lose one kind of freedom, we simply must look for another. You and I are blessed with the freedom to choose among good books, which ones will read, which ones will set aside. You can look at your bars, or you can look through them. You can be a role model for younger inmates or you can mix with the troublemakers. You can love God and seek to know him or you can turn your back on him. To some extent, Wayman, we are in this thing together. By the time I finished Wayman's letter, my vision was blurred by tears. Yet for the first time, I saw my mother with great clarity and I understood her. This is a reprint with permission from Parade 1988, sent in by Marie Ragiatini, Raggy on (laughs) tea. God bless you. Very good wording. Incredible. That was from Chicken Soup for the Insinkable Soul. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and look for one more. Chicken Soup for the Unsinkable Soul. I told you I met the authors when there were young authors in the late 80s in a small seminar in Costa Mesa. I have autographed books and cassettes, and they talked about this great dream that one day they would like to have a New York bestseller. And I was so surprised when I saw the books rolling out. I said... They made their goal. God bless them. They tried so hard, worked so hard. They talked about having imagination and keeping your goal in front of you. As a matter of fact, one guy, he said he pasted it on his bedroom ceiling. When he woke up and when he went to sleep, he would see his goal in front of him. And then he said he would keep three by five cards and flip through them all through the day. And those were his goals. And he would say, they would say, I am easily and happily going to the Bahamas. I am easily and happily having a New York bestseller book. I am easily and happily going to New York. I am easily and happily learning how to be entertaining. Things like that. And He said, The Bahamas one, he got a call about a year later and he says, they said, sir, me and my husband, we paid for this trip and we can't go. Will you and your wife like to go to the Bahamas? He's been saying that little card for a year. Sure enough, they went to the Bahamas. I am easily and happily enjoying my reading to you guys. Our next story is called "A New Day for Dorothy." Page five. As the lady talked, I tried to concentrate on the beautiful room around us instead of on her words, for she was telling me about Dorothy, her eight-year-old daughter, the middle one of her five children, a mentally retarded child. She never spoken a single word. The mother repeated. The doctors say it's hopeless. We took her up to Boston last year and I drifted away and I fixed my thoughts on the green damask draperies framing tall windows that look out on Park Avenue. How handsome the whole room was with its crystal chandeliers, its con- concert grand piano, its fresh flowers everywhere. What a lovely woman the mother was, an opera singer whose name I had known even before her later letter came asking me if I would consider a job with Dorothy. Yes, a lovely woman, and especially her love for this little girl, whom all the experts said she would be put away. The love was the thing of to concentrate on. And so while pretending to listen, I closed my ears to the result of reflexes tests and encephalograms. In my years of working with retarded children, I have discovered that my attention must not go to the lacks, but to the special strengths of such children. There was strength in each one of them. I was sure I believed that a little of God lives in every one of us, and that to bring out is the only job of any teacher. Dorothy and I met the next weekend. With me, it was love at first sight. This beautiful, blonde, blue eyed child, surely a very lovely person, lived in such a form. But her part, Dorothy, only stared at me with inscrutable eyes. It's one of her quiet days, thank heaven, her mother said. On her wild ones, there's no controlling her. My mind considered those wild days. I liked the sound of them. They told me there was a person here trapped in whatever chemical or physical prison, but an individual struggling to be seven to be seen and recognized. I told her mother I would try the job for a month. It was a hard one from the beginning, and that afternoons I would take Dorothy to a special class for retarded children. She just sat in a chair, staring straight ahead, making no effort to join in the activities. She's unreachable, her teacher told me. I don't know why they keep sending her. her, her. I gazed around the room at the other children, all engrossed in simple mechanical tasks, and I silently agreed with Dorothy that was challenging about fitting a square peg What was challenging about fitting a square peg in a square hole? With her parents' permission, we stopped going there. Dorothy's problem everywhere, it seemed to me, was the non-expectation of everyone around her. I remember breakfast one morning when the other four children and their nurse had come into town. The others quickly finished their cereal, but Dorothy, dazzled by the activity around her, Hadn't touched hers. Just spoon it into her, the nurse cried impatiently. She can eat by herself, I said. I guess she's just too interested in what's going on. Interested? Nurse gave a snort of contempt. She doesn't have any more idea what's happening than that canary. It's a shame she's allowed at the table. She just upsets the other children. It wasn't true. Dorothy's brothers and sisters, especially her older sister, Martha, seemed genuinely happy to be with her. But even Martha had fallen into Nursie's habit of talking about her. Dorothy looks nice today. Dorothy's hair needs combing. Shall I do it? Rather than to, to, to her. It was so easy to assume that because she had no words, she had no understanding either. I understood the problem. I felt it most during our daily walk in Central Park. It was October, warmly sunny Indian summer, and Dorothy and I spent hours just walking. When the silence threatened to observe us both, I sang. I started with the hymns I remember from my own childhood back in England. Dorothy seemed to like the songs, for her feet marched in time to the music, and her head nodded rhythmically. We also brought sketch pads and crayons to the park. I was fascinated by some drawings I had found in Dorothy's room, a pattern of graceful waving lines drawn over and over again. What it meant, I had no idea, but it certainly wasn't scribble, as Nurse impatiently called it. And so we would sit on a park bench and sketch. I drew trees and strolling people and the lost skyline beyond the park, and Dorothy drew pigeons. I saw the very first time what they were, not perhaps outside of the pigeons like other people's draw, but the soles of the birds instead, the very way it feels to be a pigeon. Faster than my eyes could follow, her hand move, the wings in flight, the thrust for her, the neck, and the self-important walk. The golden autumn passed too swiftly. Then a day dawned when the rain streamed down the tall windows, and wind rattled the door. So Dorothy sat on the piano bench beside me as I sang the songs I had sung in the park. I started off with one of Fenwick Holmes' Song of the Silence. Halfway through this joyous song, the miracle happened. One moment I was singing alone. The next, Dorothy was singing with me, word for word in perfect tune. Electrified, I played on and on without a break, praying that the spell would not be broken. What a memory, how marvelous her mind had retained the words of song after song, far better than the average eight-year-old. I heard someone sob, and I turned and saw Dorothy's mother in the doorway, tears streaming down her cheek, unable to do anything but hold out her arms to her child. From that moment on, life was different for Dorothy. From singing, it was not far, to speaking, All the words with music always came first. She made up songs for everything. Water, a washcloth, see what I mean? Knees that are dirty will soon be clean. At the planetarium I can watch the stars. There is Venus and here is Mars. Other changes took place in Dorothy. Her tensions disappeared along with the frustrations of a spirit bottled up. So did her wildness. The nurse never adjusted to the difference in her and took another job. As Dorothy continued to learn, I lengthened my stay just another month until she learned the alphabet. When I left, Dorothy was a poised, self-sufficient 13-year-old. Normal? Not if normal means average. All of us have strong points and weak points, and in Dorothy, everything is extreme. But this means extreme of knowing and expressing that most of us never reach. Those wavy lines, for instance, the ones she drew again and again, when she had enough words, she told me, that's what the wind looks like. Dorothy, your eyes so deep down, important things, your ears hear silent things, your world is set to music, oh, Oh, if God left something out of you, it was only to fill it with himself. Story by Francis E. Leslie. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. No wonder it's up on the front. Wonderful story. Don't you agree? Let's have a small prayer for all the children that are and adults too that are locked in their prisons of their minds, and there's a wise person. Speak to them like they're normal. Heavenly Father, may we speak to them the normal, encouraging them, and tell them jokes and stories, Father. Maybe even the ones that are in, in a coma, may we speak laughter and joy and believe. The greatest thing is to believe they're normal, to believe. That all is well in the face of the enemy who's trying to keep them down. We pray for those children, those people locked in their minds and in their abilities. Be free, be set free, spirit, soul, and mind in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, our last story for today is Growing Roots. That's on page two. Our strength grows out of our weakness. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Did you hear what I said? What did I say? Our strength grows out of our weakness. Boy, we must have a lot of strength, don't we? Here we go. When I was growing up, I had an old neighbor named Dr. Gibbs. He didn't look like any doctor I ever known. Every time I saw him, he wore denim overalls and a straw hat, the front brim of which was green, sunglass, plastic. He smiled a lot, uh, a smile that matched his hat, old and crinkly and well-worn. He never yelled at us for playing in his yard. I remember him as someone who was a lot nicer than circumstance warrant. When Dr. Gibbs wasn't saving lives, he was planting trees, His house sat on 10 acres, and his life goal was to make it a forest. The good doctor has some interesting theories concerning plant husbandry. He came from the no pain, no gain school of horticulture. He never watered his new trees, which flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Once I asked why, he said that watering plants spoil them, and that if you water them, each successive tree generation will grow weaker and weaker so you have to make things rough for them and weed out the weenie trees early on (laughs) he talked about how watering trees made for shallow roots and how trees that weren't watered had to grow deep roots in search of moisture i took him to mean that deep roots were to be treasured so he never watered his trees He planted oak, and instead of watering it every morning, he beat it with a roll-up newspaper smack, slap, pow. I asked him why he did that, and he said it was to get the tree's attention. Dr. Gibbs went to glory a couple of years after I left home. Every now and again, I walk by his house and look at the trees that I watched him plant some 25 years ago. They're granite strong now, big and robust. Those trees wake up in the morning and beat their chest and drink their coffee black. <laughs> I planted a couple of trees a few years back, carried water to them for a solid summer, sprayed them, prayed over them, and the whole nine yards. Two years of coddling has resulted in trees that are expected to be weighted on hand and foot. Whenever a cold wind blows in, they tremble and shadow their branches, sissy trees. Funny thing about those trees of Dr. gifts: adversity and deprivation seemed to benefit them in ways comfort and ease could not. Every night before I go to bed, I check on my two sons. I stand over them and watch their little bodies, the rising and falling of life within. I often pray for them. Mostly I pray that their lives will be easy. Lord, spare them from hardship. But lately, I've been thinking that it's time to change my prayer. This change has to do with the inability of cold winds that hit us at the core. Excuse me, inedible. Inedible of cold winds that hit us at the core. I know my children are going to encounter hardship, and my praying they won't is naive. There's always a cold wind blowing somewhere, so I'm changing my evening tide prayer because life is tough. Whether we want it to be or not, instead, I'm going to pray that my son's roots grow deep so they can draw strength from the hidden sources of the eternal God. Too many times we pray for ease, but that's a prayer seldom met. What we need to do is pray for roots that reach deep into the eternal. So when the rains fall and the winds blow, we won't be swept asunder. By Philip Gully. Greetings family, we're going to be reading Chicken Soup for the Soul today, another story from page 48, For the Recovering Soul. This story is entitled, Friends of L.W., Please Come to the Gate. Let's go ahead and open with a serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. James D. Davis was quoted by saying, Once she learned to walk, crawling is out of the question. Sometimes in the early 1990s, I was treating a woman in an intensive outpatient chemical dependency group. Let's call her Grace. Grace was a flight attendant and had been suspended from her job with a major airline due to her untreated alcoholism. She had been stealing the little miniature liquor bottles, drinking in it, Airport bars and uniform, and so on. Her employer, realizing she needed treatment, sent her to us. After the eight week program, I suggested to her it might be a good idea to solidify her foundation and recovery before returning to work, as she would be working in a high risk environment, serving alcohol, being out of town alone, etc. Grace did, however, to work shortly after completing outpatient treatment. One day while she was departing from a plane at the end of a long day, a major craving for alcohol overpowered her. There she was in the L.A. International Airport, pulling her roller bag behind her when this massive craving to drink came over her. She tried to just think it through or just forget about it, but it was way too powerful. It was so powerful, in fact, that she was resigned to the fact that she would just go drink. Grace thought, oh, the heck with it. I'll get another job, or maybe no one will find out anyway. But deep down inside, Grace did not want to drink. She truly had wanted to stay sober, but she was in trouble. On her way to the bar in the airport, Grace had a moment of sanity. She stopped, picked up the airport paging phone, and said, Would you please page friends of Bill W? She paused quickly, looking around for an empty gate. To come to gate 12, question mark. Within minutes over the paging system in the LA International Airport, will friends of Bill W. please come to gate 12? Will friends of Bill W. please come to gate 12? Most people in recovery know that asking If you're a friend of Bill W., it's an anonymous way to identify yourself as a member of AA. In less than five minutes, there were about 15 people at the gate from all over the world. That brought tears of amazement, relief, and joy to Grace. They had a little meeting there in that empty gate, total strangers prior to that moment. Grace discovered that two of those people had gone out of their boarding lines and missed their flights to answer that call for help. They had remembered what they had seen on many walls of meeting rooms. When anyone anywhere reaches out their hand for help, I want the hand of AA to be there, and for that, I am responsible. Grace did not drink that day. I would venture to guess that none of those people who came to gate 12 drank that day either. Instead, Grace had a moment of sanity, realized she could not do it on her own, took the action of asking for help, and received it immediately this help is available to all of us if we want it sincerely ask for it it never fails jim c jr all right man that's one of the best stories i haven't heard yet that is awesome friends of bill w our next story is called around the room On my way to a meeting last night, I was listening to a talk show on the radio. The guest this night was a man who went through treatment some years ago, but was never touched by the power there. Or maybe he was and had to find a way to justify not going forward. At any rate, he apparently wrote a book slamming every conceivable aspect of traditional recovery. Surrender was weakness. Fellowship was a sham. Recovery was a cult. For him, unmanageability was the same as option for being a victim. He was above such crutches and saw himself as a hero who was willing to tell the truth. Anyone can make fun of anything. I felt sorry for him and wish he could come with me to the meeting I was going to. Actually, our situation isn't really a meeting. We meet at a church that has a, maybe 8 or 10 meetings going on at the same time. The meetings include AA as well as al Narcotics Anonymous, but also Gamblers Anonymous, GA, and Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, and several other flavors of recovery. We all finish about 10 and close together. Maybe as many as 100 people make a circle as big as is needed to include everyone and close with the Lord's Prayer. Wherever a person may stand in that circle, most of the faces of the others are within sight. For sure, anyone can make fun of anything, but I wish the man who felt had been harmed by traditional recovery could stand where I was and see the faces I looked at and marvel at every week. Stan, a young and built with the long, smooth muscles of a panther, he is a year clean of meth, but the, the coiled strength of the drug still lives in him. It runs an inch under his skin looking for a way to break out but there he stands, hair bleached, snow white, tall and proud, neck tight against his neck, and with him are his two small children of five and eight. Stan went back to court to get custody of his children from their still drug-using mother. He was never parented, much so he has little experience to fall back on as to how daddy should act, but he tries. Every week he shows up with his kids, showing them all the love he has been taught in the fellowship. No parent has ever tried harder to give his or her children a firm foundation. Next to him, holding his hand, is older woman named Bonnie. She has adopted Stan and his children. She is her grandmother. Bonnie put it very simply, We need each other. It is what God wants. Further down the line, Stan, two women, obviously friends, holding hands in the circle, at one time in both of their lives, they were exotic dancers, who, kn- who knows what else. They are both lie wires, full of fun, love to joke around, and yet there is a deep and a hardness in their eyes that only comes from having the worst side of humanity. But there they stand, hand in hand, sober, clean, celebrating their long ride back into the light. Texas Tom is a little further on. He has been in and out of our meeting rooms for several years. His last relapse was a bad one. He actually lived at the crack house he used for the most part of four months. It's a miracle he is still alive. But even bigger miracle is that he has come back again. He is so full of guilt and shame. This night he can barely hold his head up. But there he is, included in a circle of love, that ultimately is stronger than any addiction. Mary and Frank stand together, they always do. She is Eleanor, and Frank is AA. Both have been in the fellowship for over 20 years. They have a hell of a story, but for so many years, if you saw them on the street, they would appear the most normal, ordinary, middle-class, suburban couple. They have two biological sons and dozens dozen of others they have adopted over the years. Not legally, but in a spiritual sense. Their doors is always open. Members of the fellowship who have no other place to go in holy days are always packed around their table. They are the best of good people. I spy Art across the room. He is a giant of a man who says he spent nearly all of his adult life in prison. He first got sober in prison and now three years later is still clean through the love of the fellowship and his God. He says he fears nothing on the face of this earth. Having gone through what he said has, no one doubts it. But tonight he shared that he just found out he has a 21-year-old son and has decided he would try to make contact with the young man. That scares him. He says his legs feel like jelly but there he stands in the circle clean, sober, and facing the hardest fight of his life. On and on the circle goes. Cat, who killed a man while driving under the influence and did four years in prison, now clean and giving back. John, 17 years clean, who started a business for the sole purpose of giving work to people no one will ever trust. Bobby and his wife, Root, with the old scar of a cutter crawling up his arm, who come each week with their little daughter, Charity, The young and the old, conservatives and young men with shaved heads and the tattoo and those who would never think of such a thing, the single and the married and many who once were, some financially successful and some who steal toilet paper from McDonald's, an endless variety but with a 24-carat commonality. They are all chemical-free and making something beautiful of their lives. I remember the man on the talk show driving home and thought, If this is a cult, may we all be so lucky to belong. By Ernie Larson. Beautiful, beautiful story, Ernie. Thank you for writing that in. Our next story is called The Miracle in the Making. The divine guidance often comes when the horizon is the blackest. From Gandhi. It's like a bad dream, a surprise party without the cake and minus the merriment. For weeks, you've been planning to save the life of someone you love. At times, it feels more like plotting, sneaking out to meetings you can't talk about, relieving old hurts to get them down on paper just right, wondering how you'll ever get him there, dreading the look in his face. You had the same look on your face many times through the years because you loved an alcoholic who couldn't seek help. Today you're doing it for him. You held him close all night as if to reassure him of your love and shield him from the pain. You pack for him without his knowing, sneaking his hairbrush and his favorite slippers into a bag that is waiting in a friend's car. You kiss him goodbye like this way was any other day, wondering if he would ever again say, I love you back. And now, half hour before his arrival, you sit at the intervention specialist's office with your sweetheart's two children and two colleagues who are also his good friends. His company personnel manager is bringing him here on the pretext of some meeting important to the boss. Your damn palms smush the carefully edited script You hold someone cracks a nervous little joke and you laugh softly before returning to your silent prayers. At last, at last, yet too soon, you hear the familiar voice and footsteps coming down the hall. The door opens and his voice breaks off, questioning in his eyes as he scans the room. Confusion and fear, the very look you dreaded, erode his half-smile and you struggle to look loving yet firm. The intervention has begun. What's going on here is the first of his many questions. The intervention specialist introduces himself and explains how he helps families and industries to help other people. The suspicion and confusion grow. Alcohol is not even mentioned until the first friend recalls a past drinking incident. The letter from his boss, who is out of town, tells him what a valuable employee he is, that he has the firm's support in getting well. He rolls his eyes and snorts. But then the woman he loves and his children recite their rehearsal speeches about the drunkenness and the pain it has caused them. Please get help, they urge. Today there is no more denial. The drinker wipes away his tears. And then your part is done. The intervention specialists take over, negotiating him into treatment by urging him to Join your friends and family to help you to get well. I know the thing you've done are not the decent men you really are. The drinker volunteers to go look at the treatment center after the specialist dispels some myths, no bars, no shock treatments, no forced illness. There's time set aside. Will he go now just to look? Perhaps check in later this week for just 10 days to decide whether or not he has a problem and could benefit from treatment. The specialist congratulates the man for his commitment, and you do too. He embraces it half-hearted and weary, but his children are swallowed up in the big man's arms for a teary farewell. You get the high sign to move out quickly so they can drive to the treatment center. He won't need the hidden suitcase, at least not yet. But when the man does check in at the end of the week, it's with a suitcase he's packed himself. Fear of the unknown fills his eyes, but this is his decision. In the next mail, the people who care enough to put their friendship on the line receive notes from the man who was forced to recognize that he had a disease. And several days later, when you drop by the treatment center to pick up his dirty laundry, the attached note is the best you ever know received. Thank you, thank you. I love you. I'm Ted, and I am an alcoholic. The nightmare is over. From Jan Michelle, there's an intervention story. And with that, thank you very much for listening. God bless you. Give them heaven, family. Greetings, family. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Fernando, and I am in recovery. I just got back from doing a AA meeting and an Al-Anon meeting. The Al-Anon meeting consisted of step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And the question is, did I feel better afterwards doing that step? You know, I just had to break it down. I said, admit it to God was easy because my uh, guilt, condemnation, or, you know, shame was glaring. So I, once I admitted to God, then I admitted to myself, whom the guy who gives me all the trouble itself, self. And then to admit it to another person, that with more experience and more like a sponsor and my capabilities to see further onward. And if I'm below, if I'm fooling myself or trying to fool God, you know, God can speak to another person to see what's, what's my character on that. Am I still in denial? And I'm still in denial. That's what I got of today's reading. The other one was tradition 12, the AA meeting. And that was about that. Um, Tradition 12, the the spiritual principle of tradition is sacrifice. I really did, haven't paid much attention to that, but it really stood out, sacrifice. Meaning that the more you suffer out there, the more you love and the more you sacrifice, the more you overdo it for the program and others. And sometimes it seems like you're becoming, uh, that you want people's attention, but the fact is, is that, You suffered so much under the lashes of drugs and alcohol and self-doubt and your own self. Having yourself, your soul, come against you and start tearing you apart, not allowing you to prosper, not allowing you to get that good job, that relationship, or to even feel good about yourself. Confidence was wanting. So... One of the guys pointed out that I said that God is anonymous and God gave us enough brains to use, to understand and to see that there was a creator, you know, that I wasn't just put here by chance. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're really honest with yourself, you'll give both, both arguments a good view if you're an atheist. You wouldn't just throw it off the wind and not study the situation like just to make a single cell and how much work it takes to do that. And to have an incredible amount of variety and come up with our own conclusion, well, so be it. But my conclusion is is that my consciousness and my heart tells me there's a God. And, and I wanted a, a format that I can easily relate to I can easily relate to my God. I can easily keep cleaning my soul when it gets contaminated with dirt. And uh, keep being of service where I can get confidence for the day. Make more money. Be of lower lower blood pressure. And be able to hold on myself. Conquer myself. If I can conquer myself and understand that God has answers to everything. Either God is or he isn't. Either my God answers to everything, and He does. He's got an answer to everything. And my job, my job is to be excited about Be ex- totally excited. I got a God that I can rely on, lean on, laugh with, laugh at my problems, laugh at the situations. Whew, what a deal, huh? Good God. Good God. Why does God's name rhyme with good why does the devil's name uh, rhyme with what deceptive divisive uh, devious devious why does it rhyme with uh, envious the root word anyway let's go ahead and finish this thought for the day for my perspective as a matter of fact i um, I, I took the books to the al meeting. There was uh, one lady there that came to al 30 years ago. She came back. Her, her husband is toking up uh, marijuana, and she sees the danger. It's increasing. He's in the program, but he doesn't go to meetings. She, you know, she sees the, anger, the danger blooming. Another lady says that she can't control her, uh, you know, uh, she regrets the way she acts you know, trying to straighten things out. And the lady said something very interesting. She said, this is not an easy program. Al Anon is not an easy program. It's, uh, it's hard, you know, and it takes a lot of dedication to get it implemented. But you know, the, the, uh, the fruits of it is kindness, long suffering, enthusiasm, joy, laughter, wisdom understanding it is an effective as we make it to be it is our program let's pray Let's serenity prayer please god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and wisdom to know the difference amen keep coming back family it's working